Reagan, Iran-Contra, arms deal Nicaragua, Libya, Lockerbie, Pan Am Flight 103, George H.W., Dukakis, Roseanne, and Roger Rabbit. It's a new episode of Year View Mirror. We'll talk Die Hard and the Wonder Years. Plus, when Ken had his first date, all in 88. Welcome to another episode of Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff. I'm Cliff. We're a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. And I'm Ken. In each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. This is part two of our focus on 1988. If you missed part one, definitely go back and check that out because we talked about the films Coming to America, briefly because it sucks, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Die Hard, and the TV debuts of Roseanne and The Wonder Years. In this show, part two, we focus only on the music of 1988. Ken and I have selected six songs each. We'll share what we like about the songs, but more importantly, we'll try to frame the song in some larger historical, sometimes personal context. Let's first put 1988 in historical context. For a good chunk of 1988, the country was riveted to their TV sets. Well, I know I was as a 28-year-old. I found the Iran-Contra hearings fascinating for some reason at 28 years old. The Iran-Contra hearings played out in Washington, D.C. The Iran-Contra affair was a scandal that involved the illegal sales of arms to Iran, in exchange for U.S. hostages being held in Lebanon by Iranian terrorists. The money from the Iranian arms sales was then used to illegally fund and aid the Contras, a Nicaraguan rebel group led by CIA operatives. The illegal activities were exposed and several top Reagan administration officials were implicated, but only one person actually ended up receiving jail time. Reagan definitely had egg on his face, but he escaped any direct links to the scandal. Late in 1988, a Pan Am 747 flying over Scotland exploded in mid-air when a bomb that was planted on board blew up, killing all on board and 11 people on the ground when the plane crashed in a residential street in Lockerbie. Overall, 270 people died, including 189 Americans, and it remains the deadliest terrorist attack in the history of the United Kingdom. Two individuals of Libyan descent were convicted in the bombing, one of whom was given a life sentence. In 2003, the government of Libya formally admitted responsibility for Pan Am Flight 103. Here's a story that at the time wasn't necessarily major uh, in 1988, but trust me, it is going to hasten the end of the Cold War. The United States signed the INF Treaty, which stands for the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Sounds boring, but basically it banned U.S. and Soviet-based ballistic missiles with ranges from anywhere between 300 to 3,000 miles. Ballistic missiles, by the way, are nuclear-tipped missiles. They're, they're bad. Are those like the, what are the ones that are, oh, that's, I'm thinking, ribbed for her pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) In less than three years after the treaty, both nations had eliminated over 2,600 ballistic missiles. That's a big deal, right? However, the bigger deal was that this diplomatic maneuver was one step closer to the eventual demise of the Soviet Empire, which would occur only three years later. And in the 1988 presidential election, Republican Vice President George H.W. Bush 
defeated Democratic Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts. Bush won the popular vote by just under eight points and won 426 of the 538 electoral votes. Bush's victory remains the only time since Harry S. Truman's victory in the 1948 presidential election in which either party won more than two consecutive presidential elections. The Democrats retained control of both houses of Congress. Once again, we're focusing only on the music of 1988 for the rest of the show, specifically 12 songs, I Pick Six and Cliff Pick Six. As you'll hear, 1988 was a wildly eclectic year for music. New wave music was fading out, MTV still very much ruled the industry, hair metal, as you'll hear in a bit, was growing in popularity, Michael Jackson remained the king of pop, and rap music was not only surging, it was crossing interracial lines. I'm going to start things off with this one from the supergroup The Traveling Wilburys. I guess the Traveling Wilburys' success should never be questioned. I mean, it only had Tom Heartbreakin Petty, Jeff ELO Lynn, that's Electric Light Orchestra for yep. those of you at home, Roy Pretty Woman Orbison, George, yeah, I was a Beatle Harrison, and Bob Frickin' Dylan. I've never heard of any of those folks. <laughs> The group was formed by George Harrison, who was good friends with the other four dudes. Their album, simply titled Volume One, was a critical and commercial success, and it also revitalized the careers, believe it or not, of Bob Dylan, who was not really a big deal in the 90s, but he became uh, resurged. Roy Orbison and Tom Petty, who really was uh, a rock sex god. The album defied contemporary musical trends, uh, which were happening at the time. Hip-hop hair metal. Which is kind of a derogatory term, if you ask yeah. me. And once again, we'll get into that. Okay. Uh, synthesized pop, and it incorporated what those five artists did so well throughout the, the course of their careers. George Harrison called the album Skiffle for the 90s. You know what Skiffle is? Oh, I just uh, picked up a pack of those at the convenience store the other day. <laughs> no, They're delicious. No, They're delicious. Skittles, but Skiffle. 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 Skiffle is a genre of folk music, Cliff, with influences from blues, jazz, and American folk, and not surprisingly, the Beatles' earliest songs were very much rooted in Skiffle. There were some really, really good songs on this album, and there were some really bad songs on this album. This song, great song. Congratulations, not a good song. I like that song. Really? Yeah. I really like, I like pretty much the whole album. Sadly, Roy Orbison died in December of 88, but the four remaining Wilburys would go on to record only one more album, which was released in 1991. By the time it was released, Orbison was already dead, so in the video, when it gets to the part of the song where he does his like breakout chorus, yeah. they can't do a close-up of him. They had to show a rocking chair with a guitar in it, with his guitar in it, and on the side was like on the table was a picture of Roy Orbison. Yeah. Who had met the end of the line. Yeah. Cheap Trick was an unlikely rock band to score a number one hit in the United States, Canada, and Australia with their power ballad, The Flame. Another night slowly closes in And I feel so lonely Though they had been making albums since the mid-1970s, 
The only other song of theirs to chart in the United States was Surrender, which only peaked at number 62 back in 1978. While lead singer Robin Zander and bassist Tom Peterson looked the part of 80s rock stars because they had long, frizzy hair, the other half of the band, one was balding and wearing goofy hipster clothing, the other was dumpy, bespectacled, mustached, and balding. They looked like two of your dad's bowling buddies. Due to the band's commercial decline in the 1980s, Epic Records insisted the band work with professional songwriters for their 1988 Get out of here. album. I don't believe that. <laughs> I'm telling the truth. Their commercial decline was such that their record company insisted that they work with professional songwriters for this 1988 album called Lap of Luxury, which The Flame. Uh, was off of. It's a move that paid off because The Flame was their only number one hit ever. Plus, they had a number four hit cover with Elvis's Don't Be Cruel, and it sold enough copies of the album for it to go platinum. Ken, I hate to admit that my initial connection to this song had everything to do with my falling head over heels for a girl who lived two blocks over from me. Was was this your first Flame Yes, oh, that was that's a good one. Yeah, yes, she was. She was my first real girlfriend. So the line that ended every verse, "You were the first, you'll be the last," really resonated with me. I'm not a big fan of this next song, and neither is Cliff, and we'll get into this, but I am bamboozled by its success in 1988. We are all bamboozled by its success. The song is Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. McFerrin is an American folk and jazz artist. He's best known for his sort of vocalizing techniques, such as singing very, very fluidly, but then sort of like jamming in some quick and considerable jumps in his pitch. And, and, and he would, and he'd beat on his body, right? He yeah. would make sounds with his body. Like, yeah, like a beatboxer yeah, like type a, of thing. You know, yeah. but more jazzy. Yeah. Although he has played with a wide variety of musicians like Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, and Yo-Yo Ma, McFerrin is mostly known as an a cappella singer. Remarkably, this was the first a cappella song to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, a position it held for two weeks. So obviously, Cliff, this song resonated with a whole bunch two, of people. For two weeks, it did. For two weeks, it for did. Two and it, weeks, it And every once in a while, you'll hear it on a commercial or reused in a TV show or, or movie. I mean, there is a sentiment in the song that I think people want to believe in. Even more remarkable is the fact that at the 1989 Grammy Awards, this song, Cliff, won Song of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best Male Pop Vocal Performance, Concrete Evidence, the Grammys are a joke. True, and by that point, after those two weeks of were over where it finally launched to you know the, the number one position is by the time the Grammys roll around in 1989 right people were so fucking sick of it and then they're like oh my god how did we vote for that we voted for that like <laughs> the song was also used by George Bush Senior H.W. Uh, uh, his 1988 presidential campaign but McFerrin a very strong liberal objected and threatened legal action so the campaign ceased using it 
it's kind of like a, a sloppy, lackadaisical song that just I can't. I don't attach to most conservative Republicans. I would think that Trump would his his song if it maybe it was "Don't worry, I'm happy," because that's pretty much his his mantra. <laughs> Fuck right. you all, I'm happy. I guess I can understand why this song was so successful. It's a simple mantra for facing life's trials and reducing your life's anxieties to simply being happy it i don't know it's kind of stupid i know I, I, and i don't mean to be cynical here cliff because in the end it's a positive message true maybe not so universally applicable but the song obviously resonated with a lot of people in 1988 and for that maybe we should just simply be appreciative and be happy Dog i want to talk about this next song We're talking about uh, the band Living Color, and the song is Cult of Personality. As you know, Ken, I'm not a big video game player, but man, when Guitar Hero came out, yeah, and you cult, rocked it, cult and person, you could choose Cult of Personality. Yeah, you rocked it. I got to play in that song so well, I could put the guitar behind my back a like a true Kendrick rock star and play it like Guns N' Roses did with Appetite for Destruction which by the way which you'll hear me talk about in 1987's show I think is the apex of all cultural production <laughs> uh, Living Color proved with their song Call of Personality that 80's hair metal didn't have to be soulless they had the hair well some of them had the hair right? they, they had that you know, hard rock sound um, and it's songs like this one and another one we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, that should prove to Whitey McWhite once and for all that American culture would be fucking nowhere without our black brothers and sisters. Because the four motherfuckers playing rock this hard, Ken? Yeah. They're all black. Yeah. They deliver a stunning performance, one I would argue, Ken, that is equal to some of the best that Led Zeppelin ever produced. Holy crap. Yeah. You're really going out on a limb here, Cliff. It's a it's a great fucking song. It yeah. won the Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance at the 32nd Annual Grammy Awards. Its music video won the MTV Video Music Award for Best Group Video and MTV Video Music Award for Best New Artist. The title comes from Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev's 1956 anti-Stalin report on the cult of personality and its consequences. Cult of personality prominently includes several audio samples of speeches from 20th century political leaders. The lyrics mention Kennedy, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and Mahatma Gandhi. In 2018, guitarist Vernon Reed said the whole idea was to move past the duality of that's a good person and that's a bad person what do the good and the bad have in common? Is there something that unites Gandhi and Mussolini? This song has particular resonance once again in the wake of Donald Trump's rise to power. Why have so many people fallen so hard for this decrepit bullshit? Living Color perhaps has the answer. I know your anger. I know your dreams. I've been everything you want to be. I sell the things you need to be. I'm the smiling face on your TV. I exploit you, still you love me. I tell you, one and one makes three. You gave me fortune, you gave me fame, you gave me power in your God's name. I'm every person you need to be. 
I went to go see Living Color in the summer of 1988, and Cliff, mm -hmm. that concert restored my faith in rock and roll. I walked out of there not just a believer in the band Living Color, but they had literally revitalized my love of rock and roll. I knew that rock was not dead after seeing that concert. Wow. However, yeah. I cannot hear for four days afterwards. <laughs> I remember getting into, walking out of Toad's Place after the concert was over, and I remember having to have my friends yell at me on in the car on the way home because my hearing was so severely damaged. I had been to a lot of loud concerts, Never before had I uh, heard a concert that loud. Well, and I could see that band being able to bring the noise. Yeah. Yeah, we've come to another song, uh, much like Don't Worry, Be Happy. Not a good song, but uh, it resonated with a lot of people uh, in 88. You were saying not a good song? I, yeah, Kokomo by the Beach Boys? Come on, Cliff. I mean, I am a Beach Boy purist, uh, and I believe in the genius of yes. Brian Wilson. Me too. There is nothing genius about Kokomo. <laughs> Uh, this song came off the same movie soundtrack, which included Don't Worry, Be Happy. And that was from the movie Cocktail, which I had never seen, Cliff. Uh, that's a crime against humanity, Ken. Yeah. Just, I, just saying. Let's just remind everybody that Don't Worry, Be Happy and Kokomo were featured <laughs> in this film. Uh, so that I don't remember the Don't Worry, Be Happy. That in and of itself says something about the quality of the movie. Um, the song was written by a number of people, including Mike Love, one of the band's original members. However, let's be really, really honest here. Brian Wilson, the mastermind of the classic Beach Boy sound, had nothing to do with this song. He was not in the band at that time. No. However... This song will go on to be uh, the very last number one hit for the Beach Boys, at least in the United States. The song is about two lovers taking a trip to a relaxing place on Kokomo, a fictional island off the Florida Keys. The song also references a number of Caribbean islands. It's a beach song for sure. I admit this song is on my beach playlist. I hate it, but I can put up with it if I'm on the beach with a cocktail and just lounging in the sun. It, it, it doesn't pierce my scrotum. Um, <laughs> like, don't worry, be happy does. Yeah. Like, I would rather you pierce my scrotum than make me listen to that. Kokomo is just, you get in there. Jamaica. You just get in there. You yeah. know? You're just in there. Yeah. And no, you know, it's a fun song, and, and I guess we shouldn't so be so puritanical about it because... It's this we. You're the one who's being so goddamn puritanical. It's just so over-the-top, excessive, not, sugary sweet. It's not Brian Wilson's Beach Boys. Yeah. This is not, not freaking um, Pet Sounds. Yeah. Cliff, I, I hope you have picked a next song which will purge us of this sugary, sweet overload. Cue the helicopters, please. Prior to the release of their fourth album, And Justice For All, in 1988, I was not a fan of Metallica. Overall, they seemed to me just a harder version of Black Sabbath, but without Tony Iommi's mesmerizing, catchy guitar riffs or Ozzy Osbourne's maniacal vocals. Okay. Then this song came along, and it completely fucking floored me. I had no idea that James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett, the guitarists of Metallica, were capable of such intricate guitar work. 
though hints of their melodic abilities could be found on earlier songs from earlier albums like Master of Puppets and Fade to Black. Lyrically, the song portrays a World War I soldier who is severely wounded. He's begging God to take his life. The song was the band's first to chart in the U.S., reaching number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was also a number one hit in Finland, which is just one more indicator that demonstrates how much more evolved the democratic socialist Finns are compared to us capitalistic American Neanderthals. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> Metallica performed this song I'm now talking about one for the 31st annual Grammy Awards show broadcast from Los Angeles in 89 the next year the song won a Grammy Award for best metal performance the first ever to win in that category one proved that heavy metal not hair metal with its faux hard edge and drugged out bimbos but pure unadulterated bang your head till it pops off your neck heavy metal had a place in mainstream America This song is an example of how the hell can a song like this be at all popular? It's Fast Car from Tracy Chapman. It's also an example of what I was saying earlier about the song called A Personality. In that case, you had black artists taking a form of music, usually reserved for white artists, rock, and showing that black folks could rock out just as hard as white folks, if not harder. And here, Chapman takes another musical form, typically reserved for white artists, folk, and shows that black folks can do folk music just as well as white folks can. Yeah. This song comes off the debut album from Tracy Chapman. And Chapman's story is a classic rags to riches story. She was a busker on the streets of Boston while a student at Tufts University. A fellow student of hers recommended her to his dad, who happened to be a high-profile record executive. And boom, huge, big-time commercial success for Tracy Chapman. But it was her appearance on Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday tribute which propelled the song to the top 10 in the United States. And Tracy Chapman's career actually was quite successful for a very long time. Fast Car tells a gritty, realistic story of a working poor woman trying to escape a cycle of poverty. This song, believe it or not, introduced me to socioeconomic class in America. You, okay, so you were... 14? I was 14 at the time, and this was your first time that you had ever become acutely aware that there was a like poor people as well as working class people as well as rich class people. I grew up in a very small, very, um, by saying very white is not right because all white, <laughs> just all white. I, it wasn't that I wasn't aware that there were people who seemed to have more money and people who didn't have as much money as maybe the people around us. How about this? If it didn't introduce me to socioeconomic class in America, it was the first time I really remember being pushed to think about it, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a line in the song that says, there's a verse that says, you still ain't got a job, and I work in a market as a checkout girl, but I know things will get better, you'll find work, and I'll get promoted. We'll move out of the shelter, buy a bigger house, and live in the suburbs. One day I was riding around with my buddy Chuck, uh, who was driving, and my buddy Jay, who was riding shotgun, and I was in the back seat, and I'm sure we were drinking and beer and smoking cigarettes, and this song came on the radio, and when it got to the part where it said about, you know, we'll move out of the shelter, uh, Chuck, who was driving, yells out, what are you doing in the first 
first place. You know, mm-hmm. and we all started laughing. And for, for but for me, the word shelter only meant one thing. The park that was two blocks away from the place where I grew up had these little buildings that had no walls that were sheltered. I, I just thought it, I thought it was so comical because it was like, yeah, what are you doing living in one yeah. of those shelters? People don't live in those things because this is how like naive I was. Yeah. What's I, interesting about it that as a 14-year-old, a pop song on the radio can stimulate deeper ideas about a world beyond your own. The fact that people do live in homeless shelters that aren't necessarily in the park for celebratory events. I recently went back and listened to the whole album uh, from which Fast Car came, her debut album, and I gotta tell you, it's it's a timeless classic. That music still holds up in the year 2022 as, as strongly as it did when it was released in 88. It has a timeless folk quality to it. That's the sign of a great artist, great song. Breathe in and breathe out. Oh boy, Ken. Time to hoist up your lighter. I feel a power ballad coming <laughs> All on. right, let's hear it. <clears throat> this, folks, is Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. We both lie silently still in the dead of the night. It was pretty much standard operating procedure by 1988 for a hair metal band, such as Poison, to show off its softer, less hedonistic side by offering forth what was known as a power ballad. Mm-hmm. Right? A slow song, but still with your, you know, your electrical instruments. This was Poison's uh, from their 1988 album, Open Up and Say Ah. Rose Has Its Thorn would become the band's signature song. Mm-hmm. It is the classic example of what a power ballad is. If you were going to make a time capsule for what was hair metal, you better put a fast song by probably Poison or Motley Crue in it, and then you would have to put this song in to show off the power it, ballad. It, it, I think it actually hit number one, right? Um, it was their only number one uh, hit in the United States. In an interview with VH1's Behind the Music, lead singer Brett Michaels said the inspiration for the song came from a night when he was in a laundromat in Dallas waiting for his clothes to dry. He called his girlfriend on a payphone and he hears a male voice in the background. And Brett Michaels is totally devastated. Of course, any guy would be. Well, he's in the laundromat. It's, Many a heart has been broken in the laundromat. <laughs> it's, it's been proven. Yes. Yeah. Uh, studies have shown that that is the worst place to get bad news. Yeah. And so he, he went off from the laundromat and he wrote, uh, Every Rose Has Its Thorn as a result. This is no great piece of rock music, Ken, but it still does something for me after all these years. I know I could have saved a love that night if I'd have known what to say. Instead of making love, we both made our separate ways. <laughs> and now I hear you found somebody new and that I never meant that much to you. And to hear that tears me up inside. And to see you cuts me like a knife. Every rose has its thorn. This song was released as a single in 1988. However, it came off Michael Jackson's bad album. Gonna make a change for once in my life. 
Make no mistake about it, Cliff. In 1988, Michael Jackson reigned supreme as the king of pop. Bad was a mega hit, producing five number one singles. Man in the Mirror was a rare track in the Michael Jackson catalog in that it was not written by him. It was written by Glenn Ballard, most famously of Alanis Morissette fame, and Sadia Garrett. The song was produced by Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. Supposedly, this song is said to have been one of Michael Jackson's favorite songs from his entire catalog. It's a life-affirming song, and the gospel quality to it perfectly reinforces the message of if you want to make the world a better place, you got to take a look first at yourself and then make the change. The song is an exploration of personal identity and the relationship of an individual to the larger society. It reflects Michael Jackson's growing contributions to social change. And I, I really think here that Michael Jackson doesn't get enough credit for making socially conscious music. And this song, I think, is clearly indicative of that. After Jackson's tragic death in 2009, Man in the Mirror was the final song to play at his public memorial. By that time, Michael Jackson's legacy was compromised. The Man in the Mirror was a contorted, almost unrecognizable person at that time whose talent would never be denied, but whose personal life was pretty screwed up. skipped school so I and you know how much I love school I know how much you love school <laughs> can I skip school so I can see the video for this song debut on MTV did you really you skipped school yeah at three they would debut videos on Monday at three o'clock on MTV would you be home by school by then hmm oh of course, I mean, back then, I would have skipped school even to watch my grandmother knit a sweater. So uh, maybe it's not saying that much that yeah. I skipped school. Uh, the song, if you can't tell by now, is a ballad, as the track was played using three acoustic guitars and no drums, which means drummer Steven Adler had nothing to do during the recording of the song, which occurred during a single session captured by producer Mike Sink, except to sit around and think about what he was going to do with the rest of his life once his four bandmates kicked him out of the group for, get this, oh, the irony, Ken, he got kicked out for doing too many drugs. <laughs> Axl Rose and Slash and Duff McKagan and Izzy Stradlin kicked out Steven Adler for doing too many drugs. That, he must have been at a different level of drug taking. Anyway, <clears throat> the motivation for the track is generally accepted to be the troublesome relationship between Axl Rose and his now ex-wife Erin Everly. According to bass guitarist Duff McKagan, Axl came up with a great lyric, seemingly out of nowhere. That, of course, became the story and melody of that song. It has also been stated by the band that rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin wrote the song about his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And I don't care what girl inspired this song, Ken. Okay. All right. I just want to know why there was so much whistling going on in the music of 1988. What do you mean? Well, Bobby McFerrin does it. Oh, that's right. Right? That's right. And how come it's so lame when Bobby McFerrin does it, but it's so cool when Axl Rose does it? Well, Bobby McFerrin thinks it's cool when he whistles. Sometimes music is really complicated. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Straight out of 
Cliff, you already know I am not a big rap dude, but this next song perfectly captured the fast-evolving rap scene in the late 80s, and that's the song Straight Outta Compton from N.W.A. Which is my new Get Pumped Up for podcast recording song. Really? You listened to it before we record? I, I, I listened to NWA? it. I listened to it when we re- before we recorded the first part of 88, yeah. and I just pulled up at your house. Yeah, listening to it again. You didn't shoot any cops on the way, did you? I there was there was one motherfucker I had to smoke, <laughs> but. <laughs> Rap and hip-hop music first evolved on the East Coast in the early 80s with acts like Africa Bambata, Curtis Blow, Public Enemy. However, by the late 80s, the West Coast was developing a cutting-edge sound known as gangsta rap, and no group personified that sound better than N.W.A. N.W.A. stands for Niggas With Attitudes and consisted of Arabian Prince, Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, and Ice Cube. And then later, DJ Yella and MC Ren joined about a year after the group was formed in 1987. Their debut album, Straight Outta Compton, is still considered a landmark record in the history of popular music, and it opened the eyes of listeners who were unaware of the insanity that was going on in the streets of Los Angeles. The song Straight Outta Compton became the group's first top 40 hit song, which is amazing because N.W.A. was banned from many radio stations in the 1980s due to their controversial song, Fuck the Police, which put the group in the crosshairs of the FBI, which subsequently earned them the title, quote, the world's most dangerous group. In fact, Straight Outta Compton was one of the first albums ever to get a parental advisory sticker, but by that time, it was all said and done. The album had sold over 10 million units. You ever see the film Straight Outta Compton, the 2015 film? Yes, I have. I, I think that's a damn good movie. I, I went to go see that with my son, it, Yeah, and uh, I was blown away at how well it captured not just the formation of N.W.A., but painted a, this much more poignant story of uh, the motivations for the group to form and the political and law enforcement conflicts that so many blacks were experiencing at that time. It was a real eye-opener for my, for me and my son. Yeah, no, it was a good film. And this song um, is, for me, you know, I'm not a big rap guy either, but man... There are some rap songs, and this one is one of them. I mean, yeah. when it, when it's good, yeah, it is motherfucking good. Yeah, rap, no, rap I li- I listened to a bunch of it this morning on the the walk with the dog, and I forgot just how good it was. Again, every once in a while, it's good to go back and listen to music and remember just how good it was, and then how well it holds up. And I gotta say, straight out of Compton no. holds up. Damn, that shit was dope. Alright, when I came up with my long list of great songs from 1988, the whole reason we decided to split this into two parts, this one, Orange Crush by R.E.M. wasn't on it because I totally didn't associate R.E.M. with the year 1988 because I wasn't an R.E.M. fan. Orange Crush, the first single off their Green album, is R.E.M. at its most industrial. Can you help me and the audience understand that term that you just used, industrial. What does that mean in the context of pop music? Industrial sounds like your is it factory-like. Yes. So it's this. Is it replicating the the machines. rhythms of machines? Okay, I got it. Thank you. Yeah, that's industrial rock. All right. 
Orange Crush is, of course, the name of a popular soft drink, but the song's title also refers to the chemical defoliant Agent Orange manufactured by the Monsanto Corporation and Dow Chemical for the U.S. Defense Department, and it was used notoriously in the Vietnam and, War. And that was in an attempt to sort of literally kill all of the trees and vegetation in Vietnam so as to deplete uh, the North Vietnamese of its, its food hiding. supply. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 and its, its hiding. hiding. It's food supply and it's hiding. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, according to an article published on Louder, Orange Crush is the tale of a young American football prodigy leaving home comforts for South East Asia. Singer Michael Stipe's father had served in the helicopter corps there, which gave his lyrical concerns a more personal edge. There are references to Googles and Whirlybirds overhead, though the tune's main hook, Follow Me, Don't Follow Me, I've Got My Spine, I've Got My Orange Crush, addresses a more overtly sinister form of warfare. And it's one of the few, I mean, R.E.M. is categorized as a rock band, but, and they categorize themselves as a rock band, but, you know, they don't, they're not, they don't rock. A whole lot. Yeah. Um, or they rock in different ways. But this one, it's a rocker. Yeah. Sort of. Cliff, it's time to reveal your personal favorite media release from 1988. I revealed mine in part one of uh, our two-part special on 1988. I chose the Harrison Ford mystery thriller Frantic because it was the first date movie for my now wife of 33 years. It's time for you to reveal your personal favorite media release from 88. I'm going to go with Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. It was Christmas Eve and the drunk tank. Shane McGowan has the voice of a garbage disposal. How in God's name has he had such a long career as the lead singer of first the Pogues, then the Popes, and most recently the Shane Gang is beyond the comprehension of a mere mortal like myself. Yet that voice and the songwriter behind it is responsible for producing probably both the best duet and the best Christmas song in all of pop music oh history. God, Namely the song Fairy Tale of New York off of the Pope's 1988 album If I Should Fall from the Grace of God. I'm not alone in my opinion. In the UK, Fairy Tale of New York is the most played Christmas song of the 21st century and is frequently cited as the best Christmas song of all time in various magazine, radio, and television polls in the UK and Ireland. But ladies and gentlemen, take heed. This is not Irving Berlin or Norman Rockwell's version of Christmas. Far from it. The verses are mostly a call and response between McGowan and guest vocalist Kirsty McColl that seesaw back and forth from the beautiful to the brutally honest and downright profane. You're a bum, you're a punk. You're an old slut and jumpler and they're almost dead on a trip in that bed. You scumbag, you mugger, chip-cheap, lousy bugger, tubby Christmas, you're all sorry, my God, it's our love. I mean, if that doesn't just make you want to go out and have the hap-hap-happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny and Kay, then I don't know what does. Hey, well, that does it for this show wild great show about 1988 and again it's a two-parter if you haven't listened to our first part you gotta go back if anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in this episode the history films music and TV discussed please visit our website kenandcliff.com there you will find additional links to additional reading Spotify song lists letterbox lists and an opportunity to contact us make sure to listen to next week's show which covers 1958 Cliff and I will discuss the film's Touch of Evil, starring and directed by Orson Welles, 
and the Alfred Hitchcock classic, Vertigo. For television debuts, we'll talk about The Rifleman and The Donna Reed Show. And for music, you'll hear songs by Domenico Madugno, The Everly Brothers, Eddie Cochran, and Chuck Berry. Please share Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff, with your friends and family and Shane McGowan. You can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. And the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day.